0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I will be interviewing Tom Berner. Tom is the current president and CEO of the Glaucoma Research Foundation. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. Good. So we're going to spend some time talking about glaucoma and the Glaucoma Research Foundation, um, but I was hoping to start off with your history a little bit um, and your journey working in the field of ophthalmic lasers for a number of years, uh, or ophthalmic laser technology. Uh, so if you can just talk about that a little bit and tell us how that led to your current role as president and CEO of the Glaucoma
1: Research Foundation. Well, I'm uh, an electrical engineer by training and i um... I graduated from college actually just a few years after the invention of the laser. And um, I just uh, got involved in applying laser technology first industrially and then uh, joined a little company in California that was a startup basically and uh, got involved with the, really the first commercial laser to treat Uh, an eye disease, in this case, it was diabetic retinopathy. And at the time, and this was in the early 70s, people who had diabetes for 20 years or more had a 50% chance of losing vision uh, from their diabetes, from eye bleeding inside the eye, basically. And uh, ophthalmologists figured out how to use the laser to seal off those vessels to stop that bleeding and so we introduced really the first uh, laser to treat diabetic retinopathy, which is a, a standard of care today, and um, reduced blindness from that condition from 50% to 2%. So it was a huge um, advance, really. And um, after that, I just continued to get be involved in developing different types of lasers for different uh, medical applications and primarily ophthalmic. Applications. Um, you know, we developed a laser for treating glaucoma, or also in the early 70s. Um, we developed lasers for treating what are called secondary cataracts. So, after you remove the cataract, sometimes you get um, some opacity, or you can't see through the, the capsule that's left behind when they remove your lens and put the new lens in. And um, that used to be a, a Uh, operating room procedure and uh, using the laser, we were able to make it an office procedure. So it was a huge benefit for patients and and doctors, Um, all the way to refractive lasers. And um, of course, today, those are pretty commonplace and people that don't wanna wear eyeglasses or contact lenses, maybe because of being in sports or because of their occupation uh, or just because they don't like glasses, Um, can now reshape their corneas and um, do that uh, again and um, very effectively. And uh, most recently, actually, uh, cataract uh, surgery with lasers, femtosecond lasers to remove cataracts. And I guess my favorite is the uh, selective laser trabeculoplasty or SLT, which is another laser for treating glaucoma. And um, so basically, after that kind of long career in the ophthalmic laser business and starting to think about what am I gonna do next? Um, I talked with a good friend who was an ophthalmologist, a glaucoma specialist, and um, he happened to be the founder of, a, of Glaucoma Research Foundation, one of the founders. And they just happened to be looking for a new CEO. And I was in, at the right spot, the uh, right place, right time. and. Um, We kind of knew each other, and I felt my experience would be amenable to to working at the foundation and uh, was lucky enough to get the job. And now uh, here it is, you know, practically 20 years now that I've been CEO of Glaucoma Research Foundation. And it's just probably the best job I've ever had. And I just feel so fortunate with with my career and, and with this opportunity to help glaucoma patients
0: that's that's amazing you know so the first thing you know i think about when you're talking about the the various ophthalmic lasers applications is uh and i never really thought about this before but uh, how impactful the laser has been in ophthalmology in general right like in in uh you know myriad eye diseases uh you know lasers are 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 used for treatments and even in uh some of the preclinical uh models of disease i know how lasers have been been used so um, that's a, you know, a nice overview that you gave there. Um, but going to Glaucoma Research Foundation, so you've been there for about twenty years. so You probably know a thing or two about glaucoma. Um, can you maybe give a, you know, just a brief overview of what glaucoma is? You know, who who's at risk for glaucoma? Is it um, how prevalent is it? You know, uh, like on a national or global scale, etc.
1: Well, it, glaucoma again, uh, most people. If you ask them about glaucoma, they they think, well, it has something to do with old people, and maybe they're aware that it has something to do with eye pressure because maybe they've had a a test for their eye pressure at some point. Um, But it's really a a, a much more widespread than people realize. It does affect uh, sort of depending, you know, maybe one to 3% of the population. Um, There are more than Three, you know, three to maybe as many as 6 million people in the US who have glaucoma. Globally, it's in the 60 to 70 million people. Um, a lot of people, the, the interesting thing about glaucoma, so unlike cataracts or unlike macular degeneration, it's really a symptomless disease. A patient, the person with glaucoma doesn't know they have it. And by the time they lose enough vision to realize they may have glaucoma, um, they, that they they may have lost 40 or 50% of their vision. And that's because our brain is so good at um, adapting to the gradual loss of vision. And of course we have two eyes and we can turn our heads. So uh, with glaucoma, the vision loss is from the the side, if you will. And so you don't tend to see it. And I I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from different people about uh, how they discovered that they had lost vision due to glaucoma, and sometimes it's, you know, somebody running into the side of, of their car. You know, they're at an intersection and they don't see a car to the side, um, or a, um, so it's uh, it's an insidious disease in that sense that it's symptomless, um, and uh, yet uh, a simple eye exam, a, a, when I say a simple, really a complete eye exam, can often detect it early. And um, so it is uh, the second leading cause of blindness in the world. It's the largest cause of irreversible blindness, but it's treatable. And uh, the good news is if it's diagnosed early and it's treated, vision can be preserved. And uh, so that's, that's kind of what glaucoma is. It's, it is uh, technically it, it is a disease of the optic nerve. So what what actually happens in glaucoma is the nerves that connect the eye to the brain are what are lost. And uh, these nerves, um, you know, you have about a million of them in your eye that have a a cell on the retina and then they have an axon it's called, but it's like a fine wire, if you will, a fine filament that connects that cell in the back of your eye to the visual part of your brain and uh, one of the interesting things that not not everyone realizes is is that you don't see anything with your eye you see with your brain and so the brain is taking these electrical signals that come along these fine uh, nerve cell uh, axons if you will and take that information and make it into the visual things that we see and cherish uh, the colors and, and everything else. So um, glaucoma is a disease of those axons and nerves uh, that causes their loss. And today there's really no way to replace them. So that's one of the things we're working hard on.
0: No, I think that's, you know, that's a nice uh, summary. The the story about uh uh, someone, you know, losing you know, discovering that they have glaucoma because someone almost ran into the side of them, uh, or whatnot. Um, I I've lived that. Uh, so I have written as pigmentosa, as you know, and, um, you know, often starts with mid peripheral vision loss. Um, but I was still able to drive until, uh, I was about 22, um, during the day it was fine to drive. And my optometrist at the time told me I'm fine to drive. Uh, I shouldn't drive at night though. Uh, and I remember driving myself up to uh, university that fall and it just seemed that a couple of times on the highway uh, you know, a car just kind of seemed to come out of nowhere my like you know I clearly had you know blind uh, blind spots or islands of blindness in my vision that my brain was filling in like you had mentioned um, but then these things are just kind of coming into my field of view and that day uh, when I got to the university right there and then I uh, took my own license. away. So stopped driving because it was just, yeah. it was just, it was, it was scary. And it was, uh, um, it was, you know, all of a sudden, but, um, so, you know, you've talked about uh, some of the, um, you know, the basics, I guess, of glaucoma and uh, how important it is. Uh, I didn't actually realize how widespread it was, uh, until I wouldn't say until now we've had a, uh, we had a conversation earlier and you brought this up, but I didn't realize how, just how widespread um, glaucoma was and that it was the leading cause of irreversible blindness globally. So it's uh, certainly interesting to, to, uh, to think about uh, because as you said, a lot of people look at it as a disease in you know, older people all the time and, uh, and don't know much more about it. Um, but the foundation is doing more than just supporting research. The foundation has branches on the education side of things as well. So maybe you can talk a little bit about um, the glaucoma research foundation and these different branches Uh, of education, uh, funding research, et cetera.
1: Yeah, let me just mention, uh, Sean, you also asked about what are kind of the risk factors for glaucoma and I I didn't really mention those. Um, And one of them is age, Uh, another is uh, ethnicity. And um, it turns out that uh, people of African descent, Hispanics, Asians are at higher risk. So they have a higher prevalence uh, than people of uh, uh, European uh, descent. and uh, also family history. And I mentioned family history because it's it's so important that that there is a genetic aspect to glaucoma and so if, if glaucoma is in your family, it's really important to pay attention and get your eyes tested. And so that I just want to get that little plug in there for uh, what some of the the uh, risk factors are for glaucoma. And um, your question about the foundation, the Glaucoma Research Foundation, uh, it really, uh, as an organization, we're 43 years old. It was started in San Francisco in 1978. We are national and even global today. Um, And um, the real uh, impetus for starting Glaucoma Research Foundation was these the doctors who were treating their patients and just wanted better treatments. So from the beginning, I think Balcom Research Foundation has had really a patient focus and it was doctors wanting to do more for their patients and particularly to have better treatments. And they felt that research was the answer. And today, we I think we all recognize the importance of medical research to find better treatments, better diagnostics, uh, better better um, ways to, to manage disease and live with disease and ultimately to cure diseases. So that was really the genesis of Glaucoma of Research Foundation. And our three, you know, probably our major areas of focus are research and that's really patient driven because it's research to find, as I said, better treatments and and a cure, Uh, patient education and awareness uh, to help really empower patients to manage their own disease, to work with their doctors collaboratively. And that sort of brings me to our our third kind of one of our, I think one of our most important aspects of the foundation, which really comes again from the beginning um, is collaboration that through collaboration among researchers, collaboration between doctors and patients, collaboration among the doctors, we can advance the technology, we can advance the care more rapidly, and we can hopefully uh, make some dramatic improvements in what we can offer patients. And uh, our goal was really a, a world without glaucoma. So I like how you mentioned collaboration, and we're going to circle back to
0: that uh, in a moment, but I wanted to see if you could mention uh, some of the um, pivotal research that the Glaucoma Research Foundation has funded in the past, because I believe that um, the foundation has been involved in some pretty um, noteworthy research in the glaucoma
1: space. Uh, Is that correct? Well, I guess I can modestly say yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's fair that's fair. Uh, but uh, really, one of the one of the probably one of the most pivotal pieces of, of research um, in, in the field of glaucoma was funded uh, entirely by Glaucoma Research Foundation, and it was a collaborative effort among glaucoma doctors to uh, Find out what uh, what, were the, what was the best way to treat glaucoma, and it was called the Collaborative Normal Tension Glaucoma Study. And this study, which was a multi-center including Canadian uh, ophthalmologists in U.S., uh, it was uh, on the order of a nine or ten-year uh, study to uh, identify the best way you know to treat glaucoma, and in particular. It was the first study to show that lowering eye pressure actually preserves vision. And today, everyone just kind of thinks automatically, well, if you have glaucoma, you know, it means you have too high pressure, we got to lower the pressure. But that wasn't necessarily uh, proven. And that collaborative normal tension glaucoma study was a randomized controlled clinical trial that established that lowering eye pressure was the a good therapy for glaucoma, and it led to a whole group of subsequent studies in the U.S. and abroad, mostly funded by the government because these large control clinical trials are very expensive. And these studies, as a group, really determined how doctors treat glaucoma today. So they were they were very important. Um, uh, another. In very, uh, I think, uh, critical study and kind of a, a catalyst for just like that um, collaborative normal tension glaucoma study was a catalyst for many other studies on how do you treat different types of glaucoma patients. Um, the, our research program, we call it the catalyst for a cure, um, where we bring four laboratories together to work collaboratively to solve a significant problem around glaucoma. Um, The first one of those we started, it's actually 20 years ago. Um, And it was really to understand what was going on in glaucoma that caused the loss of vision. How were these neurons that I talked about earlier that connect the eye to the brain, why did they go, why were they lost, why did they die? And that team of researchers, we funded for a total of 11 years And they were really the ones I think that were significantly responsible for changing the view of glaucoma from being this eye pressure problem to being a neurodegenerative problem, to being a problem of the loss of these ganglion cells that was a, a whole process of the cell getting sick and ultimately dying and identifying some of the earliest changes in those nerve cells uh, that led to their loss. And their papers from that that research are some of the most widely cited in glaucoma research to this day. So that was another very pivotal study. And uh, uh, we also were involved in funding some of the early research that identified the first genes that are causally related and... um, um, and then we'll we can maybe talk more, uh, but I, I want to stop here for in case you have a question.
0: Well, no, I think it's you know you're hitting on on uh, those key points, and that you know the, the foundation has really been in the background in, in glaucoma research for you know for decades, right? And um, and I like how you you know highlighted both the catalyst for a cure and the collaborative nature of that. Um, you know, in our earlier discussions when we first spoke uh, several weeks ago. Um, you're you're highlighting that aspect of collaboration and how the foundation can foster collaboration between uh, between research groups um, now the catalyst for a cured currents those are is that what the current um, collaborative funding program uh, is still called because uh, i know you have some some these collaborative funding initiatives still ongoing and uh, so maybe at the same time you could talk about some of those and what some of the the uh, hot topics in glaucoma are that the foundation is uh, is involved in supporting.
1: Well, the the I think the unique thing about the Catalyst for a Cure and uh, a collaborative research program is that most academic research is still individual scientists and individual labs that have to get. Grants and get funding to support their research um, and have to publish papers to advance their careers and again to get the funds to, to pursue their research. So medical research tends to be somewhat, I hate to say isolated, but it's somewhat independent laboratories. And they do get together and they do present their work, usually after it's published. Um, and That means that the progress is is slower than if you had real-time collaboration, where scientists and laboratories were exchanging the information daily, hourly, as things happen in real time, um, and then publishing as a team rather than individually. And so the idea of our collaborative, what we call Catalyst for a Cure, but this collaborative a consortium approach to research is that we bring together a team of scientists, and what we've found is four labs working together, it seems to be the optimal number of labs, and we fund them for more than one year. We fund them for three-year segments based on results, so that the funding is, is a three-year grant, but it's renewed annually based on the goals they set and their accomplishment of those goals. And then it's, it's actively, I don't want to say managed, but it's actively supported by an advisory board. So the team of scientists and the four labs work with their advisors to set their goals around a, a broader goal that the Glycoma Research Foundation sets. And so it's a, it's a fairly unique model of research. And what we've discovered is it works very well. And the scientists uh, in the first team, for example, hadn't even worked on glaucoma before. They were neuroscientists and molecular biologists and um, geneticists and people that had the skills to understand what was going on in glaucoma. But we purposely wanted people who came from outside the field to bring fresh viewpoints. And they had some amazing insights and really made some changes in how glaucoma research was viewed and, and conducted. And with the success of that first Catalyst for a Cure team, we initiated a second one. And this one was on what are called biomarkers. Um, and um, biomarkers are, are like uh, ways, indicators of disease, ways to, to detect a disease. So yeah, you know, temperature, for example, if your temperature goes up, you must have a cold or something going on. So it's a biomarker for a disease and um, intraocular pressure in a way is, measuring the pressure of the eye is kind of a biomarker for glaucoma. Now it turns out it's not a very good one because maybe half the people with glaucoma have quote, normal pressures. But if you do have elevated pressures, um, it's certainly, glaucoma is certainly a a potential cause of that and something that needs to be looked at. Um, And this biomarker initiative, we brought together again, uh, four laboratories to work on finding new approaches to measuring whether someone has glaucoma and even more importantly, is the disease getting worse and is the treatment working or not? And you need good biomarkers, good ways to measure the effect of a a new therapy and uh, to be able to get FDA clearance, for example. So if I had a, tomorrow, if I had a new drug that could save those retinal neurons from dying, um, I'd have to prove to the FDA, I'd have to prove to my colleagues that it actually works, that it really does stop these nerves from dying. And if I don't want to spend years, because glaucoma is a slow, gradual disease, if I don't want to spend years to, to prove that my new treatment works, um, I need a way to see if if the gradual changes to the nerves can be detected and measured. And that's what these new biomarkers do. So that, again, is a major contribution. It's a tool to help us solve neurodegeneration. And um, the third uh, Catalyst for Cure, which just started three years ago, we're just wrapping up the third year, um, is actually the culmination of these first two in a way. And it's the most challenging of all. It's how can we the, the guide, the, the goal that we gave to the team was basically figure out how to not only stop neuro, neurodegeneration to protect those nerve cells, but also how to replace them. And one thing, and I, I, I'm sorry if I'm talking too much here, <laughs> um, but one of the important things is that Glaucoma Research Foundation is also much very much patient-centered. And we do surveys every year. We talk with patients. We have patient summits to bring patients and doctors and scientists together. And one of the things that doctors told us is we have better and better treatments for glaucoma, but we have no way to replace lost vision. And Sean, you can certainly appreciate this because there's a lot of effort going on to find ways to restore vision that's been lost to uh retinitis pigmentosa and some of these other retinal diseases. So if if we could, for example, implant new retinal neurons and grow new connections to the brain, we could restore vision. Um, so th- this is a, a huge challenge, and yet we think with this collaborative approach, bringing together four different labs that hadn't really worked together previously, um, from different specialties whether it's stem cells or regenerative medicine or glaucoma that we could work to solve this problem and it's uh in the first three years they've made amazing progress really
0: who chooses the labs like do you as a
1: foundation say
0: okay i'm going to choose these labs or are they applying separately like how does that come together
1: that's a great question and uh, that's, again, we, we actually have a book that, that was written by one of our board members about the first Catalyst for Cure, which gives the recipe, if you will, of how to do a Catalyst for a Cure. And it's available on our website. Uh, you can download it and uh, any institution could use it. Um, but it's, it's a thoughtful approach to selecting the labs. And uh, what we do first, uh, and we're actually beginning to think about another catalyst for a cure. Um, but the first step is really to select the advisory board. And this is to find people who are the senior researcher scientists in the field that, that and and that are, who are addressing, let's say the problem we'd like to tackle. And then we go to them and ask them to help us better define the goal. And then to come up with uh, recommended names of researchers in the field who might make a good collaborative team. And it's not easy to necessarily select this team. Um, so normally uh, we'll have a list. I think when we did this CFC3, we may have had 40, uh, 30 or 40 people who were kind of in that area of might, you know, might be good uh, potential participants. But we look, number one, for people who are really willing to collaborate, not just in name, but in reality, really kind of live with each other, you know, visit each other's labs, share ideas and and publish together. Um, So we're looking for people who are collaborative by nature. Um, And then early in their career in some ways where they don't already have a fixed area of research or, or necessarily a whole defined approach that they're working on and they're just looking for more funding for something that they wanna do because we're really asking them to do something that we wanna do. And uh, so they have to be willing to kind of shift a little bit um, and in some cases, maybe a lot to work, you know, to spend a certain percentage of their time working on on the problem that we suggest. Um, And then we did for this last one, we also did open it up to applications and the, the advisory board did interviews and so it was a, a fairly rigorous it took us about a year to organize and bring the scientific advisory board on and then the the scientists um and in the end uh, we just have ended up with a dream team and we're, we're three years into it and this team acts like they've been working together their whole career
0: i love that <laughs> that's it's so uh um different i guess right it's it's like if you were building a startup and saying okay i need an engineer, I need a product manager, I need this, I need that. Maybe none of them ever worked on the specific problem at hand, but they're all bringing unique skill sets that, uh, you know, put together um, are going to be synergistic, right? So I love that. uh, I love that approach.
1: Um, Sean, I I like your, uh, that thought of like a startup, because uh, having done a few startups myself uh, and been involved in startups, it's you know there there is a lot of similarity there, and I think part of the way this uh, whole idea came to being was this blend of of industry people, startup people, um, scientists, and doctors, and 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 the overriding idea of collaboration and and a successful startup. That's a great way to look at it because that's in a way what this is.
0: No, for sure, for sure.
1: Um, so I
0: have a uh, just a bit of a left turn here, but. Um, we are still in a still in a pandemic um, for how long who knows Um, how has the pandemic affected the uh, well the foundation in general and maybe particularly the fundraising that the foundation uh, does that can support um, you know some of these
1: sizable grants well as you can imagine the the uh, pandemic has had a huge impact, I think, on on everyone and in almost every aspect of our lives. Um, I think, number one, it has given, certainly given me personally, it has given our team a real appreciation for the scientists we work with, the donors we work with, and our colleagues, the, the team itself. Um, and we we truly missed the in-office experience, we went remote in March of 2020, I guess, and we only started back into the office you know, earlier this year. Um, and uh, we did it pretty seamlessly. We had a plan for business interruption. We never thought we'd really use it, but we had a plan. Uh, we were already using Zoom and had been for a few years, so uh, the, the transition to Zoom was seamless for us. Um, And so really, the good news is our donors really, they didn't uh, lose a step. They didn't drop the ball. We actually had one of our biggest years in 2020. Um, So the donors stood by us and wanted to see this research go on. The scientists had their labs closed. And yet, They got more done because they figured out, oh, this is great. All this, you know, online research I've been wanting to do, the meetings we've wanted to have that we haven't been able to get to, uh, they were able to do, you know, again, just sort of shift a little bit their emphasis, continue to work closely together. And um, some of the labs did allow where there were experiments that just couldn't be interrupted, they could go in periodically. Um, But uh, I would say, despite everything, Well, and then the other uh, huge benefit of, of, for us, sort of one of the silver linings was going more globally. So we converted our events to webinars and virtual events and attendance went from 50 or 70 to 400 or a thousand because we could uh, broadcast it around the world. And um, so I think it increased awareness of Glaucoma Research Foundation I I don't want to be too enthusiastic because I'm not advocating pandemics as a way to build your business. Uh, but for us, it was uh, it was challenging. Um, but I'm very grateful to the to our donors, to the team, to the scientists because everybody just you know we just kept on going.
0: I like that uh, that story, but I think it's also a testament to to your team because um i know from firsthand conversations that not every uh, organization that was trying to fundraise uh you know in ophthalmology domains or otherwise uh was so successful a lot of them struggled during um 2020 so the fact that you know your team a had a plan in place and b uh you know managed to pull off a you know a record fundraising year i think it's a testament to you know to the organization and probably that the, probably the you know a thread of a startup uh, that kind of runs through the organization and uh, people willing to um, pivot and adapt as needed. So, um, Tom, the you know people who are listening to this, I know you mentioned the the book or the ebook that um, some of the research groups can maybe access and download. So, uh, with your permission, we can link to that uh, certainly in the in the show notes. Um, but are there other resources that you would recommend to the listeners? Um, and other ways that they can find out about the foundation, the work it's supporting, or to get involved or support uh, on their own?
1: Yes, um, and thank you for that question. Um, we have a website, uh, which I would encourage anybody who is listening and wants to learn more about glaucoma or wants to be involved in any way, uh, please visit our website, it's glaucoma.org. So it's easy to remember. Um, We get a visitor, I just did the math, every 10 seconds somebody goes to our website to learn something about glaucoma or our research or to get their questions answered. And often they are people who are newly diagnosed with glaucoma, but they can also be friends, relatives, family members. Um, And there is a huge amount of information on our website and it's constantly updated and there are all the reports from the scientists who we fund are on our website. And it has a search box that is, uh, I think it's its an excellent search mechanism so that you can put in a question or a topic and it'll find everything on our website about it. So I would encourage using our website. Um, definitely if there's a researcher or a scientist interested in uh, collaborative research or, or setting up a consortium to solve a a research problem. I would encourage them to look at this uh, book on the the nine year catalyst for a cure story. Um, and if you just Google that on our website, it's a downloadable PDF. Um, or if you want a copy, contact me and I will we'll mail you a hard copy. Um, and uh, the um, yeah. So I think the the website uh, is is a key to learning more and. Um, Uh, the yeah and I say the booklets available and the research reports are available on the website so Sean I'm not sure if I answered your question completely
0: yeah no of course of course but I also want to talk you know anybody who who wants to support the foundation anybody wants to donate um, getting in or getting involved in other ways so yeah uh, what can they do or who should they reach out to should I just put your email over the internet and everybody everybody contact you directly Or, or what's the best way to do that
1: Thank you for that. Um, Donations are very important. And that's, you know, we get zero funding from the government. A lot of people don't realize that nonprofit foundations like Black Research Foundation, we raise every dollar ourselves. And so donations are extremely important, Uh, small, big, it doesn't matter. Um, And we have a donate button on the website. So you can click on that and you can donate Uh, You can also volunteer. And as I mentioned, we, you can also attend some of our events. We have the patient summit um, and we have webinars and these webinars, and we have, uh, we're very active on social media. Uh, All of these things are a way to learn more about it and to get involved. Uh, So volunteering, donating, Uh, would be terrific. We recently got one of the biggest uh, gifts we've received, which was a million and a half dollar grant from the Stephen and Michelle Kears Foundation. And it's a matching grant. So people who want to donate now can actually double their money by, uh, you know, just clicking on that donate button. And whether it's $10 or $1,000 or $100,000, we'll we'll match it. So, um, yeah, so that's... um, you know, one of the first things I learned, uh, of course, when you're in industry, you know that you have to sell stuff and you have to make a profit to survive. So going back to the startup mentality and in a nonprofit, it's really very similar. You know, you, you have to run a sustainable business. We we have a highest four star rating on Charity Navigator. We meet all the better business bureau standards. It's because we run com a Research Foundation in a way I like your word you know it, it's like a startup um, and we're a very small staff um, and what we try to do is is raise money and and put it to the programs of research, education, patient support. and our numbers are roughly 83 uh, percent of every dollar goes to program and the, the balance is to do fundraising and to handle the administrative expenses so, um i think black home research foundation is a good investment whether it's volunteering time whether it's donating um and we certainly appreciate and are very 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 grateful uh to our our donors um from across the country and around the world
0: tom uh thanks and you know we're certainly going to try and do our part at the broad eye podcast of disseminating this to the masses this episode uh i think it's important to get the, the word out about what the foundation um is doing and and trying to do in the years ahead so we will certainly do our part get get it out as as broadly as broadly as possible so um thanks for taking the time to chat with me today i certainly certainly enjoyed the discussion
1: well i did too sean thank you for the great questions and for reminding me that i do need to ask for donations so <laughs> <laughs> um and you have a good day and and i hope your listeners uh something from our discussion
0: thank you And that concludes today's episode of the broad eye podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.